Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, and verse 19 through 24. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will not have a reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord. A theologian once said that Christians... are called to live in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. So let me say that again. Christians are called to live in a, in a way, in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. And it's a pretty challenging way to think about it. If you're a Christian here today and you're wondering, what, what kind of life am I called to be leading? Uh, does your life by your neighbors and friends who know you? Does it provoke questions to say, why does that person live that way? And do those questions that are provoked, is the only answer Jesus to those questions? Uh, We've been going through this series in the Sermon on the Mount, and in many respects, the Sermon on the Mount shows us exactly how we are to do this, uh, how the Christian is supposed to live this life that provokes these kinds of questions. And so it's things like loving your enemies, which we looked at last week, Uh, Things like turning the other cheek. Uh, Maybe in our culture today, it's uh, a commitment to sexual chastity and fidelity only in marriage. Uh, It's things like considering the poor blessed or the meek and the mourners and the merciful blessed. Uh, It's rejoicing when we're rejected because of what Jesus has done. That the Sermon on the Mount in a very real way is Jesus articulating the kind of life that the Christian is called to live and a life that will, that will raise questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Today, uh, we're coming to a topic that maybe if Christians were to live as Jesus teaches here, this topic might be the topic that would raise more questions from the world than anything we've talked about so far. Uh, because what we're talking about is how the Christian is called to relate to money. Or another way to think about it, you know, every kingdom has its own culture. Kingdoms oftentimes have their own language. 
Every kingdom has their own um, kind of social expectations, morals, customs, that sort of thing. But every kingdom also has their own economy. And if you're a Christian, what does it mean to be a member of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to participate in the economics of the kingdom of God? Because the economy works differently in the kingdom than it does in America or in the West or in the world around us. Uh, one theologian, Abraham Kuyper, uh, he says this, Alas, people read the Sermon on the Mount and find it beautiful, but they do not believe Jesus actually meant it. They find it to be delightful poetry, but spiritually too high for the prose of our lives. And then he says this, this is going to sting. Even the best Christian always retains a small chapel for mammon, which was a pagan god of money. Even the best Christian always retains a small chapel in the hearts for mammon. Well, today, whether we like it or not, Jesus is coming after that chapel. And he says, you can only serve one master. It's either me or it's money, but you can't do both. Okay? So buckle up. Hopefully it's not too bad. Hopefully. Live according to the, king, the economy of the kingdom of God. Let's understand three things from the text that was read to us. First, I want to look at the danger of wealth. Uh, secondly, I want to look at a new relationship to wealth. And then finally, we'll consider the source of true wealth. Okay? So first, let's look at the danger of wealth. The Bible, if you read through it, is actually very, very nuanced in the way that it treats money. So sometimes it'll look at money and say, this is a blessing of God to be received with gratitude and thanks. Uh, other places, they kind of look at money as a trust. So your riches have been given to you so you can steward well for the purposes of others. So they're given to you for, as a responsibility for the good of others. But the one way that the Bible talks about money more consistently than others is that it talks about money as a spiritual danger. Isn't that interesting? In many respects, it's maybe opposite of the way that our culture around us kind of considers money. Money, for us, almost feels like an unqualified blessing. But if you look, for example, at Luke 12, Jesus himself says, Be on your guard against all covetousness and greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's a war. Uh, it, it's a threat. Or uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is just before Israel is about to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. And here's what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your forefathers, with great cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat of it and you are full, it says, beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt of the land of slavery, or perhaps the person who says it most harshly is James, the biological brother of Jesus. He says this, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And for all of us in the West, for the most part, listen, you rich people, we live in maybe the, one of the wealthiest societies that the history has ever seen. Uh, or Jesus, of course, in Matthew 19 says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we hear that and we say, what? Well, it couldn't actually mean that. And so scholars say, well, maybe it's camel's gait. I'm like, no. I think it's a camel going through the needle. Or sorry, the camel going through needle's gait. I'm like, mm, I think it's a needle. But it makes us uncomfortable. And yet Jesus says it's a spiritual danger, perhaps more than anything else. 
Let's make sense of this. Why is it a spiritual danger? Well, the place I want to go to, I don't know if you could put it up there, verses 22 and 23. This is probably the most confusing part of the text that we have before us today. So uh, verse 22, where it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great uh, is that darkness? Now, what does this have to, it's an odd couple of verses, isn't it? Maybe the hardest, most confusing. But here's, uh, here's what we know. We certainly know that Jesus here is talking about wealth. Because the text before he says, don't store up treasures for, on earth, store up treasures in heaven. The text immediately after that, he says, no one can serve ma- two masters. It's either God or money. And right in between is this comment about, um, about the eye is the light of the body. Now, what is he saying there? Uh, essentially, uh, what he's saying is that the reason why greed and materialism is such a spiritual danger is that it darkens your eyes. Uh, see, as long as if your eyes are good and there's light all the way around you, in one sense, your whole body is filled with that light. But if your eyes are darkened so you can't see, then no matter how much light is around you, none of it actually gets into you. None, none of it actually helps who you are. And so greed and materialism is a particular danger because it darkens the eyes and you're plunged into darkness and you don't even realize it. So greed is the sin that we cannot see. So I remember somebody once said, you know, <clears throat> nobody has ever said, oh, boy, I didn't realize I was committing adultery. It, it didn't dawn on me. Like, when you commit adultery, you know exactly when you're committing adultery. There are sins that where you're like, well, I didn't realize I was stealing. Well, you know exactly the moment you decided to steal. But, nobody, but everybody says, oh, I didn't realize I was being greedy. It darkens your eyes. It makes it nearly impossible for you to see when you're actually doing it. Um, I'm not quite sure, or, or another way to think about it, no one's ever come to me as a pastor. People come to me and say, Pastor, I can't forgive this person. I'm really hateful. Uh, I am a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of fear. I'm, I'm dealing with grief. I'm dealing with all these different things. No one's ever come to me and said, Pastor, I am really struggling with materialism and greed. It's just not a sin that we are able to see. But it also darkens the eyes because greed is almost always somebody else's problem, isn't it? Because all of us know somebody who has a little bit more than we have. And so we all kind of feel like, well, I live, you know, pretty modestly in comparison. And so it's never really my issue. And this is especially true in New York City, right? Because all you have to do is travel a few blocks. And not only are you near folks who have a lot more than you, you can actually see their stuff from the sidewalk. Like, you could look in and like, yo, that's nice. It's right there for us. And so we walk around, we say, well, greed is not my problem. It's their problem over there. It's that person's problem over there. But I think another reason why greed blinds our eyes, darkens our eyes, is because our entire culture is a culture built on consumption. And that's the water that we swim in. That's the air that you and I breathe, that we can't actually escape it. Uh, One advertising agency, and if you work in advertising, I think it's a noble profession. At the end of the day, it is taking valuable things and connecting them to people who need them, right? So uh, advertising is not in in any any sense uh, kind of like an, uh, an evil 
uh, uh, line of work. But this one advertiser once described his work as saying, what we do is we, it, we are involved in the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Did you hear that? The organized creation of dissatisfaction. So one example, I, I don't know, I'm not a particularly curmudgeonly person, although my kids might disagree with that, but I do sometimes have these curmudgeonly moments. So the other day I was watching TV, and there's a Verizon ad that comes up with Kate McKinnon, you know that? She's Saturday Night Live. Uh, and so she's do, doing a Verizon ad. I'm just watching, and she's kind of funny, so, you know, enjoying it. And at some point in the, in the commercial, she says, get a new phone because you deserve better. And I'm like, I don't deserve better. Are you kidding? Like, so all the curmudgeonliness, like, this is how you make people unhappy with everything they have because you need to try, you're trying to get a profit, and you're trying to get their money. You deserve better? Like, when did we begin to normalize having $1,000 computers in our pockets at all times that we need to rebuy every two years. It's, it's an entire culture created on consumption. And very quickly, our wants become our needs. I want better becomes you deserve better. And suddenly we're blinded, our eyes are darkened to the greed, to the materialism, to the, the danger of wealth all around us. Uh, materialism and greed is not just an acceptable sin today. It's actually treated as if it were a virtue, and that's precisely its power. It darkens our eyes. You have no idea when you're beginning to be blinded by it. You have no idea when it begins to actually start to take up a residence inside your own heart. You have no idea when money comes alive and becomes mammon, the god of money. You can't pinpoint the moment where money takes on spiritual power, enchants you, casts a spell over you, and becomes the god that you begin to serve. And Jesus uh, was not mincing words, was he? When he says uh, at the very end there, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And yet as Abraham Kuyper said, we all want to find a way to keep a chapel dedicated to mammon in our hearts. Surely we could have a little bit of both. Surely there are ways, but Jesus says you will hate the one and love the other. So that's the first point, that yeah, money can be a blessing from God. Uh, money can be a, a, a resource to steward for the good of others, but first and foremost, what Jesus teaches time and again is that money is a spiritual danger. Uh, that it, it threatens to blind you and ultimately to enslave you. And so he says, be on your guard. Watch out, because it can sneak up on you. So that's the first point. Uh, secondly, let's look now at a new relationship with wealth. And here we're turning our attention to verses 19 through 21. Do not lay, lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we say, okay, money is kind of supposed to be seen as a spiritual danger. So if you're 
citizen of the kingdom of God. You're trying to live out a faith where you're, you see yourself as primarily being a citizen of the kingdom of God. What is the right use of money in the kingdom of God? What does the economy of God look like? Well, we see a clue there. And, of course, we saw a clue in the very first chapters of the ver- first verses of the chapter as well when it talks about giving money to the needy. Uh, because wealth in the kingdom of God consistently in the Bible is treated as something to be given away. Uh, that the way to true wealth is not to store it up for yourself on earth, but to store it in heaven by giving it away, by giving to the purpose of the kingdom. So let me try to uh, illustrate it this way. One of the great metaphors that we see in the Bible for our wealth, for money, uh, is that it's like a seed. And so Paul talks about this uh, in the book of Corinthians. But uh, it's like a seed. So on the one hand, the metaphor is kind of apt because seeds are small and round and cold and hard, kind of like a coin, right? Uh, But even more than that, uh, how does a seed work? Uh, how do you unlock the wealth that is found inside of the seed? Well, imagine that you're a farmer, and you're the worst farmer of all time, um, and you believe that your seeds are what make you rich. If you believe the seeds are what make you rich, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to hoard the seeds. You're going to keep it in a jar put it under your mattress. Uh, You're going to find ways to store it. You're going to make sure they never get wet. They never get dirty because dirt and water will ruin the seeds. You're going to hoard it. You're going to protect it. You're going to keep it clean. You're going to count your seeds over and over and over again. Why? Because you haven't understood how seed actually produces wealth. The farmer who has to be convinced to sow seeds in the ground. The farmer who feels like he's wasting the seed by throwing it in the dirt and watering it. That farmer is not stingy or greedy or shrewd or selfish. That farmer is a fool. See, as long as the farmer mistakes seeds as his wealth, he will always hoard the wrong thing. In fact, he has never even seen what true wealth looks like. But seed becomes wealth when you do what? When you do something that will look crazy to everybody else. When you throw it away. When you throw it in the dirt. When you get it wet, when you bury it, when, you, when, it go, when it leaves your line of sight for months on end, it's only when you bury it in the ground that seed comes back to you, back to you as true wealth. As long as you're hoarding the seed for yourself, you can't even imagine the harvest that it was meant for. Now, what would happen if we uh, started to use this as the primary metaphor for how we looked at our own wealth? If we saw money uh, uh, as seeds, or if we saw the number in our bank account, not as my wealth, but as the number of seeds that I have dormant in a jar underneath my mattress, how would that change? What if we begin to saw giving to those who are in need, not as tossing my wealth away, but we saw it as taking seed out of the jar, sowing it liberally and widely into the lives of those around us 
so that our seed can be transformed into true wealth. It might look outrageous to the untrained eye, but you would know this is how this works. And here's the other insight that I want to just draw out real quick. If you uh, throw your seed out into the, into the dirt, it doesn't come back to you as more seeds. It doesn't come back to you as a much bigger seed that you carry, carry home. What happens? You throw it, it gets buried in the ground, it disappears from your sight, and what happens? It comes back to you as what? As grain, as bread. It comes back to you as fruit, as wine. It comes back to you completely transformed, unrecognizable to yourself. It comes back to you as true riches, a completely and utterly transformed life. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying if you understood what money was for, if you understood how wealth works in the kingdom of God, you would sow it liberally like a farmer. You wouldn't store up treasures for yourself on earth. You would sow the seed knowing that it will come back transformed and lives changed and the kingdom of God advanced. So let me get very, very practical here for you. <clears throat> I'm not saying we should all give all of our money away to take vows of poverty. Although maybe that shouldn't look as weird to us as it does, but we're not all called to do that. Uh, we are called to be responsible with our finances and that sort of thing, but we are called to be so generous that it raises questions for which the gospel alone is the answer. Or let me put it another way. Could your tax returns function like a gospel tract? If someone saw your tax returns, would it raise all kinds of questions for which Jesus would be the only answer? So very practically, what does that mean? I would say first, there's an Old Testament rule of thumb called the tithe. It's Christians giving 10% of their income to ministries, local church, to uh, global ministries, to ministries amongst the poor. Uh, if you're not yet tithing, that would be a great place to start. And do it joyfully. Don't do it out of guilt or fear or anything like that. Do it from conviction and joy, believing what Jesus says about how wealth works. The tithe is a good place to start. Uh, if you're already tithing, I'm, gonna ch I'm not going to let you off the hook because I don't let myself off the hook on this either. If you're already tithing, I want to challenge you. What this looks like means can you challenge yourself to increase your giving by 1% every year? Now, there's some years you're not going to be able to do it, and that's fine, right? There's going to be down years. You're going to have to make some adjustments. But can you challenge yourself to say, oh, I could do one more percent this year? Why? Because you're not the farmer trying to convince yourself to sow the seed. But you believe Jesus at his word, right? There's a radical generosity there. Uh, but a third maybe practical tip is this, <clears throat> that all Christians should be giving in a way that it actually requires you to not do things you otherwise would have because of how much you're giving. Like, you should actually cut into your lifestyle a little bit. Like, it, it should change your actual kind of decision-making, day-to-day decision-making. Is it doing that? And are you seeing that as a participation in the sowing of the seed uh, for the kingdom of God? So just some, some, some things to think about. Because what is our new relationship with our wealth we don't hoard it for ourselves because that's a spiritual danger. Uh, we don't trust that it'll be the thing that provides for us. A new relationship with our wealth is that we believe it's like a seed to 
be sown for the good of others. That leads to my third and final point here. Because we're not going to be able to do any of this, let's be honest, unless we have an alternate source of true wealth. Unless our souls are tapping into a different source that makes us feel truly rich. That's what we really mean, right? So for example, for me, money has always been security. My wife comes from a family where money is about connection and it's about bringing family together. That's everything. For me, our family was money. You save it up because you know a rainy day is coming. So money was always about security for me. And so if my heart still trusts in money, then when I hear me telling me, give your money away, what I'm hearing is give your security away. And nobody in their right mind is going to give their security away. The key is, how do I get my heart to trust something else for security? So that when I hear someone say, give your money away, what I'm hearing is just give your money away. Right? We have to find an alternate source for our hearts to plug into to tap into. And we see that in verses 1 through 4 when Jesus says, you know, when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpets. That's what the hypocrites do. What's going on there? Those folks are trying to give their money away. So in many respects are kind of applying this passage already. But what's happened? Even though they're giving their money away, their heart hasn't changed. You can take money and buy things for yourself to make you feel good about yourself for status, to feel important, like you're somebody, like you matter. Or you can use that money and you can save it to make you feel secure so you know that nothing's going to happen to you. Or you can use your money and give it away so that people will see you as this great person. In all those ways, you're still looking at money as the measure of your value. And the heart hasn't changed. And so Jesus says, don't do that. Because it's not so much about the outward behavior. Jesus says, I'm after the heart. Where you have play, where is your true source of wealth? Is money still how you know that you're somebody? Still how you know that you're worth something? Because here's the thing about money. If money is still how you know you're worth something, you will never have enough. You will always feel poor. That number is never big enough. But if you had another source of wealth, if you had another way to say you're worth something, if you had another way of somebody saying this is how valuable you are, you see how it would unlock your heart? It would break the spell, wouldn't it? Mammon would shrink back down to just a little coin that you toss off to the side in the corner of your, your apartment. You see how it would, it would fundamentally change things? Let me show you what this might look like. Uh, apparently, I'll give you two examples of this. <clears throat> so apparently there was an incident up in Winnipeg, Winnipeg Manitoba uh, at a Tim Hortons, which is basically like Canadian Dunkin' Donuts, okay, uh, that a customer early in the morning picked up their order, and then they paid for the tab for the customer behind them. As they just offered to pay them. Uh, so that happened early in the morning, <clears throat> and that one act started a chain reaction for the next 226 customers, hours of that cascading back. Incredible. Now you hear that and you're like, all right, well, you know, Canadians are like super nice. <laughs> right? They're not like American. Canadians. Of course the Canadians would do that. Okay, if that's how you're thinking, it wasn't just in Canada. Apparently something similar also happened down in Houston, Texas, uh, this time at a Chick-fil-A. And this time, that same act led to a 67-car chain 
of generosity. And you're like, yeah, but they're Southerners. They're super nice, too. And they're at Chick-fil-A. Like, you feel great when you're at Chick-fil-A. Okay. Massachusetts. Okay. In Massachusetts, same thing, 55-car cascade, chain reaction. Well, what's the point of that? There's something about receiving unexpected and undeserved generosity, an act that makes no sense to the giver, even in the smallest way that unlocks something in the human soul. It breaks the spell. Now, that's kind of a small example, but you see it in in more significant ways. This is a second example. There are studies that show uh, that the economically poor actually give away a much higher percentage of their income than the economically rich. And as I interviewed people, the reason for that is the economically poor have experienced what it feels like when they couldn't make rent, and someone they know who can't afford to be doing stuff like this pays their rent for them. And that act of generosity unlocks the sense of we need each other. We're all in this together. Now, $5 at a Tim Hortons for a donut unlocks hours of generosity. A month's rent from somebody who can't afford to be paying it unlocks a life of generosity. What do you think would happen? What kind of life would explode If you came to realize that the God of the universe himself, to no benefit to himself in an act that made no sense to him, didn't spend $5, didn't spend a month's rent, but poured out every single ounce of his blood for you. When you didn't deserve it, when you didn't ask it, when your entire life was forfeit in debt, What if you were to learn that the eternal Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, the God who owns all things, left all of those riches behind, left all of the safety, left all the security, left all the glory, left all the beauty, left all the comfort, left all of that behind, and in a gratuitous, undeserved, unasked-for act, didn't just empty his pockets, didn't just empty his bank account, but emptied his very life for you. If you knew that to be true, wouldn't you have a source of value? Wouldn't you have a measure of worth that is infinite, that moth and rust cannot touch, that a thief can never come in and steal away? Wouldn't you have a wealth that you could never actually spend down because the one person whose opinion matters did that. Can you imagine the life that that would unlock? Friends, if you're a Christian here today, every single part of that is absolutely true of you. And if Jesus says, you're my treasure, If Jesus says, I'm willing to sow not just a seed, not just a few dollars, I'm willing to sow my my very life and bury my life into the ground so that I can receive my riches transformed, so I can receive my riches as you. 
you coming back home to the house of the Father. Jesus, of course, I'm like the seed. Of course, I bury myself. Of course, I give my life. Because you're the treasure. You're the riches. You're the wealth. Christian, that's true of you. And if you're here today and you don't know what you believe, that can be true of you too the moment you place your faith in Jesus. So now, why would I lay up treasures for myself here on earth? It makes no sense. Why do I have this little chapel for the God mammon? It makes no sense. Why don't I give my life to the God who gave his for me? And as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we get to come to a table in just a moment where the seed was buried and it came back to us as bread and wine. We get to feast of the riches of the kingdom of God because this is how the economy of the kingdom of God works. And so we'll t- partake of that together. Let's pray. Lord, would you unlock the power that money so often has in our hearts? We confess it to you. And Lord, instead, show us that there is a far, far greater source of wealth available to us. That if we saw what you've done, we would never feel poor. We would feel incredibly rich because of your riches. Lord, show us that vividly now so that we can walk out of here today living in such a way that provokes questions for which you are the only answer that we might give generously, that our economic life might raise questions because of what you have done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.